Well, as I mentioned before this summer, we are preaching through the Psalms, not one through 50, but we're going to jump around and try some different ones out. We're following the lectionary as our guide for the Psalms this summer. And just a bit of background on the Psalms, there's 150 of them. Psalm is a Greek word. Originally, of course, these Psalms were written in Hebrew. And then in the fourth century BC, a group of people translated them into Greek. That was the Septuagint translation. So Psalm is the Greek word for song. Really, the Psalms are the songbook of the Bible, 150 of them, songs. And so this summer, as we explore the Psalms together, we're going to try to explore them in different ways, to sing them, to do responsorial readings like that, to pray the Psalms together, to read them aloud together, to act the Psalms. We're just going to try to explore new ways of thinking and feeling our way through this songbook of the Bible And so there's actually an invitation today and throughout the whole summer that if you are gifted in music, if you're gifted in acting, and just you feel like you could bring something to help us experience the Psalms in a fresh new way this summer, to pray about that and to think about it and to come talk to somebody on staff, send one of us an email and say, hey, I write music and I want to take some, like add a melody to one of these Psalms to help us experience it in a fresh way then we would love to experience that in the context of a worship service this summer. So pray about it and think about it. The Psalms that we're preaching on will be on our website. It was sent out in our email blast, and it'll be on our Facebook page this week too. So you can look at them and think about them if you're a musician or if you feel like you want to help us experience the Psalms this summer. Today's Psalm is Psalm 130. And so I'm going to begin by reading it to help us hear it in another way this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we pray this day that we would hear your word for us from this scripture, that wherever we are, if we're in a place of depth or if we're in a time of high right now in celebration, that you would hear our voices this morning, that you would know us and that we would hear what it is that you would have to say to us this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm sure many of you perhaps are wondering, why in the world is Kurt wearing a bow tie? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Carolyn's saying yes, she agrees. I don't often wear ties here, and I don't ever wear a bow tie, but this is just a small way for me to come alongside the graduation season and say, and to celebrate alongside them, this is the official bow tie of Princeton Theological Seminary, where I got my Master's of Divinity from, yes. And see, in the East Coast in New Jersey, people do wear bow ties, and it's normal, it's a regular thing. Um, and so every school in the East has an official bow tie with their logo imprinted on it, 
like this one. So again, this is just a small way to come alongside this fun season of graduations and to celebrate alongside the people who are graduating. Um, you know, and for those of us who like Facebook, this is a fun time of the year. Yesterday, I got to see all of Sequoia High School photos and people celebrating, laughing together, families traveling to celebrate, great pictures. This is just a happy time. Uh, it is a joyful time in a season where we get to lift up people's accomplishments and what they've been working on and to lift them up and say, look at what you've done, congratulations, and to celebrate that with people. And just getting to go to the Mexico mission trip this summer, getting to know some of the students in our area, they are profoundly gifted and they have worked hard and getting to see them use those gifts in their life. So congratulations to people who have graduated. Congratulations, Enrique, congratulations. You're moving on to high school. So we're celebrating you today too. But I also wonder if in this season there's a sense of anxiety, a sense of stress about what's to come, about what happens after they leave high school or after people leave college or graduate school. Is there a sense of anxiety about that as well? I was thinking about this because last week I read this Newsweek article that was talking about the unemployment rate in the United States of America, how since 2000 and 2009, it's the lowest it's ever been. The unemployment rate's down to 5.4%, which is fantastic for most of us. That sounds like great and good news. But the stressful part about that statistic is that if you look among the generations, the millennial generation, people who were born between 1980 and 2000, the unemployment rate is 13.8%. Remember, the unemployment rate is not just people who don't have jobs, but it's people who are actively seeking to try to get work. They're people who want to have jobs, but don't have them. And then oftentimes in this generation, this article was saying that when they do get jobs, they're generally working in jobs that their degrees don't sort of live up to them for it. They're working in lower paid jobs. Maybe they don't get benefits. There's a sense in which there's some stress, perhaps some anxiety about what life looks like when you graduate college now as a 22 year old. But also wonder, what are the faith implications of this as well? Here's an image, it's kind of hard to read, but we've been talking and I think the church has been talking a lot about this Pew research that's been done to talk about this group of people who have no affiliation with the Christian religion or any religion for that matter. And that's interesting when you look at the whole of the United States of America, but it's even more interesting when you look generationally. If you can see on the left side, it says, the generation that was born between 1928 to 1945, 80% of them claim themselves as Christians. And then it gradually gets lower and lower and lower and lower to now where it's about 57% of people born between 1980 and 2000 call themselves Christians. And 34% of them have no religious affiliation. One in every three people born between 1980 and 2000 have no religious affiliation. So I wonder, the stress, the anxiety, looking for work, not being compensated for the hard work you've put in, and then you don't really have anything to guide you and to give you a vision, perhaps, I'm not saying that, but perhaps there's stress there as well. Out of the depths, I cry to you. I wonder if people are experiencing that in this season post-graduation out of the depths. 
For this sermon series for this summer, I began reading N.T. Wright's new book on the book of Psalms. I don't know if you, any of you have heard of it. It's called The Case for the Psalms, Why They Are Essential. For those of you who don't know N.T. Wright, he's this brilliant English scholar. He can write incredible books on theology and on biblical studies. He wrote a 1,200-page book on justification on faith. Huge book, tiny little font. I mean, it was a gigantic book. But then at the same time, he can write a 100-page book like this written for everyday people, for common language, to help us orient ourselves to different books of the Bible. N.T. Wright is brilliant. The interesting thing, one of the takeaways I got from this book that I want to share with you all this day, and I invite you to read it. It's a good book. Perhaps it'll be a good conversation partner this, for you this summer as we consider the Psalms. Is that N.T. Wright begins his book having a conversation about worldviews. He has a conversation about worldviews. Rather than talking about who wrote the Psalms, where they came from, the history of the Psalms and tradition, he has a conversation about worldview. He says worldviews are like spectacles. There's these things in our lives that help us to see something and interpret whatever that is that's in front of us or before us. It helps us interpret data points. There was one illustration from the past week of my life that I thought spoke to this idea of spectacle like a worldview. And that was during worship last week on Sunday. For those of you who were not here, Aaron and Andy Vitas, they dedicated their baby, Kiriana, to God last week. And during Andy's prayer, Andy said something along the lines of, when the world tells you you're a random accident, we'll remind you that you were fearfully and wonderfully made by God. On the one hand, it was a worldview that took this really sort of extreme version of a reducing a human to this kind of intense scientific perspective that a human is nothing more than a random accident. And then on the other hand, the worldview that Kiriana is a person who is fearfully and wonderfully made by God. Two different kinds of worldview. But those worldviews shape how you understand who that person is and what's in front of you. So here's this quote from N.T. Wright about worldviews that I think can be helpful for us today in Psalm 130 and also through this whole summer. This is what N.T. Wright says. He says, People have often supposed that the main difference between the worldview held by the early Christians and the worldview most of us grew up with is that the first is, it is often assumed that because we live in the modern world, we are bound to dismiss that ancient worldview as out-of-date, pre-scientific, and based on ignorance, and based on science, technology, and the wisdom of modern free society. This, however, is radically misleading. I think there was a slide missing in there. So <laughs> let, me try to, let me try to articulate what he's articulating. So, sorry, that's confusing. Uh, basically, what he's trying to say is that today when people talk about the Bible, they say, since that was written 2,000 years ago, it's not relevant to us anymore today because it came up out of this worldview that was ancient, it was pre-scientific. They didn't enjoy all the benefits that we enjoy today based on scientific knowledge. And N.T. Wright is saying, well, that may not actually be the case. Because 2,000 years ago, there were plenty of people and there was other philosophical ideas at the time that didn't believe in God. And he points to this idea of Roman philosophers, the Epicureans. They didn't believe in God. 
So there was also other ancient traditions and worldviews that didn't believe in God. And our modern world has just taken on Epicurean philosophy as the main worldview today instead of the biblical traditions. So it's not that the biblical tradition and the biblical worldview is somehow out of date or irrelevant. It's actually that it's profoundly relevant because you can't reduce a human to just random accident. A human is much more than that. You can't reduce life in that way. It's much more than that. One of the invitations of this psalm for us, really, this is a real invitation for us, is to notice in the psalm how there is this exclamation point after verse 1. It says, Lord, hear my voice. The worldview of the psalmist is that God is present. God is a reality in the here and now. God is not distant and far away. God is not something that happened thousands of years ago and we just come here to remember those things that happened then. But God is here and God is now and present with us. And that wherever we are in our journey of faith, if it's a place of depth, we can cry out to God and God is attentive to that, knows it, hears it, and knows it intimately. That's one of the invitations of this psalm in the Psalms. God is here and God is now. Another invitation for us today is that I think Psalm 130 helps us to know Jesus. It helps us to know Jesus. Perhaps you've seen in some of our sermons this year, there's a task force at Trinity. It's called the Common Language Task Force. It's one of the priorities of Trinity We're trying to discover and have a way to have a conversation about what the spiritual journey is all about and to help us as a church begin to have those kinds of rich conversations to help inform the spiritual practices. The spiritual goal is in front of us. It's on the screen. It says, knowing Jesus so intimately that we become like him. That's the spiritual goal, knowing Jesus. So how does Psalm 130 help us know Jesus? Psalm 130 is a psalm of ascent. There's 15 psalms of ascent. Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. They're called psalms of ascent for two reasons. One, it was thought that the Levitical priests, that they were 15 steps that went from the bottom up into the temple. And so the Levitical priests would sing each psalm one step at a time before they entered the temple. The second reason is that the Jewish people would make pilgrimages from their cities to Jerusalem for the various festivals that took place in Jerusalem throughout the year. And on these pilgrimages, the people would sing these 15 psalms over and over and over and over and over again on their way to Jerusalem. It became like the mixtape, you know, for the first century church. That's what it was. It was on their iPod, their iPhone, or it was their Spotify playlist. That's what it was. And they would listen to these psalms over and over and over and over again. I began to think, there's this part in Luke chapter 2. Jesus was in Nazareth when he was a little baby, Nazareth. And in Luke chapter 2, it says, eight days after he was born, the family journeyed to Jerusalem. And then they went back. And then every year they would go back to Jerusalem at least once a year to celebrate Passover. 
Here's the journey. I Google mapped it. I tried to figure out how long is that really, that walk between Nazareth and Jerusalem. Can't be too bad. It says 31 hours long, like 155 kilometers. That's not too bad, right? We could, not too challenging, pretty easy, something we could get done. But then last week, um, I'm playing on the Trinity softball team right now which has been really fun and uh, also really challenging at times. I'm not the best softball player, but it's fun. And last week, there's so many of us on the team that we have to rotate between playing and sitting when we're on defense. There's like four or five guys on the field and then four or five guys on the bench. We rotate every inning. And there's, a, there's some young families that are on the team. And so last week, I was sitting on the bench and I was looking after Amy DeCueto's son, Adam. He's three. And uh, Amy's playing catcher. And so Adam and I are getting to know each other. We're talking about his cool Darth Vader shoes and talking about his San Francisco Giants hat, getting to know each other. And then halfway through the inning, Adam says, I want to go be with mom. And so just like a split second, wants to run onto the field, right? (laughs) I thought, oh my gosh, how do I stop Adam from getting onto the field? Because there's flying softballs, baseball bats are all over the place. That's not a place for a three-year-old, right? Try to protect him and hold him. I'm not a parent, so this is still new to me, (laughs) this whole reality of protecting children and uh, sort of taking care of them. And I thought, oh my gosh, how do you do this, right? That inning lasted so long, it felt like. (laughs) It just was, (laughs) hopefully it goes short because that means we're not giving up runs, right? But it just felt like it just lasted forever. But it was fun to take care of Adam. At the same time, it was incredibly stressful. Could you imagine that family taking Jesus two, three, four on a 35-hour walk? No car. Maybe they had a mule. Probably poor. Probably didn't have horses to make that journey. Every year, kids, they probably journeyed together, right? There's a sense in which the community had these psalms to sing to help them in that literal journey between Nazareth and Jerusalem. I'm sure there was more than just kids running away that were dangers and troubles on that journey between those two physical places. In Psalm 130, in Psalm 130, it says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, I hope My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. I imagine on those journeys between Nazareth and Jerusalem that they had to have people who would stay awake all night long to watch out for the camp. They probably set up shop and camp and they had to have somebody stay awake all night long to make sure that if there was any dangers coming along, they could send an alarm to the rest of the group as they made this journey on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Now, there's hope in the sunrise because it's a sure thing. Just like when my baseball inning, it was going to end at some point. You know, it was going to end. Relatively, it felt like the longest inning of my life, but it was going to end. For those who had to set up shop on watching and waiting for the morning, that night was going to end. The sun was going to rise. The psalmist says, hope in the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. The sunrise surely is a hopeful thing, but hoping in the Lord 
is more sure than waiting for the sunrise or for a baseball inning to end. Hope in the Lord. So graduates, so Trinity, I can't tell you that the job market's going to get better. There's some of you in here who probably could tell me that, that have MBAs and are very skilled in that, but I, I don't know that. But what I do know is that you can trust in God the way that Jesus trusted in God. That you can let the Psalms shape you and form you the way that Jesus was shaped and formed by those Psalms. That that relationship with God will be there with you in those times of depth. If you cry out to God, God is present in the here and now to hear you and to listen to you. And with God is steadfast love and great power to redeem. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious and loving God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for who you are, for your steadfast love and for your power to redeem. And we just pray that if you, we pray that you would be attentive to us, God, that wherever we are this day and moving forward, that you would be with us and that we would know you and that you would hear our voice when we call out to you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And now we will be singing a hymn and a song. So will you rise and let us lean on that reality that God's grace is enough for us. God's grace is enough for us.